It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Iran has transferred several hundred UAVs to Russia. Right now, we have no plans to provide Patriot batteries to Ukraine. We should have no drama, no gridlock, and no delay. We should have had these bills all done. We finished our bills. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Just in the past week, we have averaged over about 60,000 cases per day. There is a risk for doing it. So why can't our medical establishment acknowledge that? Why the deception? Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. expands training for the Ukrainian military as Russia warns against sending Patriot missiles into the war zone. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. With some big decisions to be made here in Washington on funding the war effort as winter sets in, we'll talk ahead with Kurt Volker, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, as President Biden considers his next move. The White House again making free COVID tests available to meet a rise in new COVID cases. Just as Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, creates his own panel of experts to push back on the CDC. We'll talk about it with Dr. Jay Varma, architect of New York City's COVID response program. Analysis from our signature panel. They're both with us. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. On this day, Donald Trump announces a new line of NFTs. That's real. And we begin today with the war in Ukraine and news from the Pentagon announcing a significant expansion of training for Ukrainian forces. They do this training in Germany. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder spoke about it today with reporters. This program, this expanded training, will uh, provide training to approximately 500 Ukrainians per month. Uh, it's essentially focused at battalion level. And so as we move forward, uh, we will stay flexible and adaptable uh, based on the needs of our Ukrainian partners uh, and the evolving situation in Ukraine. A lot of questions. This is important about the involvement of U.S. forces. It was, in fact, General Ryder who told us just a few weeks back that American boots were on the ground in Ukraine. They're not there pushing the front lines, but they've been training, inspecting weapon systems and training Ukrainians on how to use them, observing them in the field, trying to be there to help when necessary. This ups the ante here with not only much more training, a much faster clip, but now at battalion level, as General Ryder explains, will include joint maneuver and combined arms operations training. So that starts now. Just for a little perspective, we're going to do 500 a month, he said. The U.S. has so far trained about 3,000 Ukrainian troops. So this is stepping up a lot. Still no word, though, on the Patriot missiles to help defend against Russian missile attacks, right? Close the skies. President Biden will make the final call on this, but... It's been remarkable to hear the evolution of messaging from the Pentagon on this. This is General Pat Ryder 
on November 29th when asked about the Patriot missiles. Right now, we have no plans to provide Patriot batteries to Ukraine. Uh, but again, we'll continue to have those discussions. And when and if there's something to announce on that front, we will. OK, fast forward to today. In fact, I think that briefing is still going. Uh, General Pat Ryder responding to Russia's comments now that providing the Patriot missiles would be a provocation. I would just say that I find it ironic and very telling uh, that officials from a country that brutally attacked its neighbor in an illegal and unprovoked invasion through a campaign that is deliberately targeting and killing innocent civilians and destroying civilian infrastructure, uh, that they would choose to use words like provocative to describe defensive systems that are meant to save lives and, and protect civilians. Ironic. Remembering that President Biden also now must consider his next move on funding by way of the annual National Defense Authorization. We've discussed this. Remembering he had concerns with the COVID vaccine mandate for U.S. troops. This is where Kurt Volker comes in, former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and always kind to join us here on Sound On for some perspective. Mr. Ambassador, welcome back. Why not send those Patriot missile systems now? Absolutely. I think they are doing it now. It'll take time now that the decision has been made. It'll take them a little bit to get there. But I think the intent is to provide them now. The question is why we didn't do this three or four months ago right. when we knew that Russia was going to be targeting civilian populations just the way they are now. Uh, this expanded training program as well, I'm assuming all of this ties in. We're going to start training 500 Ukrainian troops per month, a much uh, more pronounced uh, program than what we've had here. And I realize they're going into Germany, but we already have U.S. forces uh, you know, on the ground, specialists and consultants on the ground in Ukraine to deal with the weapon systems we're providing. Are we starting to walk a fine line here between proxy war and, and real war, or is this more uh, of the same? I, I think that the framework, yeah, I think the framework here is still that the Ukrainians are defending themselves against a brutal aggression. And anything we can do to help them be able to do that better, we should do. Uh, others have been training the Ukrainians for some time. The British have been doing it in larger numbers for a longer period already, mm -hmm. about 5,000 at a time, and a couple months of training in the U.K. The Poles and the Lithuanians have also been doing some training. So uh, I think it's, it's great that we are now ramping up our effort to do that as well. This is all to protect the civilian population, as the spokesperson from the Pentagon said. Yes. Um, they, they need all of the help we can give them right now because of what Russia is doing. Just to be clear on the, the Patriot missile issue, you know, there have been reports that the U.S. is finalizing plans to send them. We just haven't seen a real official announcement on this. Uh, and, and Russia now expecting it to happen, Ambassador, is warning of consequences if, in fact, that happens. They say they will target those weapon systems. How do you react to that? Is that just what you would expect? Yeah, yeah good luck to the Russians trying to target them. Huh. Um, the Russians are throwing everything they have at this war, and they're losing. Um, they don't have precision-guided munitions, not many of them. They're not hitting the targets. Uh, yesterday, they, they sent off 13 drones trying to hit uh, sites in Kyiv. They all got shot down. So the Russians are saying these things like, oh, this is a provocation or, oh, we'll attack these systems in order to try to deter us. And we shouldn't be psyched out by that kind of rhetoric from Russia. We should understand that, first off, their behavior is completely unacceptable and brutal and actually a war crime. Uh, secondly, they can't do much more than they're already doing. And thirdly, it is completely justified to help the Ukrainians defend themselves.
A Patriot battery, I understand, requires up to 90 troops to operate it and to maintain it, uh, which is partly why we didn't want to go down this road to begin with. Can Ukraine handle that on its own? Uh, Ukrainians are very competent and very sophisticated. They'll get trained up very quickly. They operate other uh, missile defense and air defense systems, so it's a matter of learning this one and converting to it. Uh, they're certainly going to be capable of doing that. Again, if it takes the, if it's that difficult, we could have been training them a lot sooner. Well, uh, no reason to wait until now. But that being said, uh, the system will add to the layering of the air defenses for Ukraine. We've already provided short-range and medium-range air defense systems. Patriot is now a longer-range precision-guided system, and this will help them interdict more of the missiles that are being fired at them. We are having this conversation, Ambassador, as uh, lawmakers, specifically senators, def- uh, debate the defense a spending authorization. This is live sound yes. of Senator right Dan now. Sullivan on the floor right now, now making his case here. The Senate could clear uh, this as soon as today and send it to the president for his signature. Does it allow enough for Ukraine and for us to replenish our own arsenal? Well, there's a supplemental uh, amount for Ukraine, which is about $38 billion. That's going to be enough for the next six months or so. Uh, And in the meantime, we also need to be closing up our defense budget and replenishing some of our own stocks. And this is both good for the military to get fresh equipment, and it's good for the defense industry to have a commitment to um, opening supply uh, lines and keeping them open because of guaranteed procurement from the government. So I think that we need to plus up uh, the U.S. side of it while maintaining that level of about $38 billion for Ukraine. That'll be enough to work, you said, about halfway through next year. What happens then, knowing that there is some opposition on Capitol Hill, growing opposition to spending more? Well, yes, there are there are some outspoken people on the far right and on the far left uh, who don't think that we should be spending this amount of money, and they 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 see us as getting too involved, and they they want to see more accountability, which is fair. There should be accountability, uh, but you have a majority in both parties and a majority in both houses of Congress that are strongly in support of helping the Ukrainians and strongly in support of pushing back on Russia's aggression. And if you think about it this way, I mean, the the amount we're spending on Ukraine's defense is degrading the Russian threat far more effectively and with far less risk to the United States than anything we could have ever done ourselves. Are you and I having this conversation a year from now, Ambassador? I don't know that we will be. Uh, I think that Russia is at a point now where they have ambitions to seize and take this territory and claim it to be part of Russia. Putin is not going to give up on that. And yet their means to execute that are being eroded very, very rapidly, both economically and militarily. So I think something is going to snap inside Russia next year where the elites in Russia, the intelligence services, the military, will see that Putin is destroying the country and may in fact do something about it. Boy, I hope that's true. Uh, We'd love to stay in touch with you as we figure this out. Kurt Volker, former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations. He's been there and he knows and former U.S. ambassador to NATO, which, boy, has had quite a year here with this conflict. As far as what's happening on Capitol Hill, the Senate, Chuck Schumer says, let's get it done. Both sides will keep working on an agreement to pass the National Defense Authorization, hopefully today. It's trying to do it as soon as today. The NDAA has been a consistently bipartisan effort for every year more than six decades. 
We do not expect this year to be any different. Okay, we'll find out about that as we assemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, they expect to get this done here. It looks like we had a deal already in place, of course. Is the president going to sign it? Oh, sure. I mean, this will be an important uh, uh, signature for him. He'll support um, uh, what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, inside the bill, it's been very uh, well negotiated uh, with Congress and the Defense Department and National Security Agencies. So, um, you know, they'll want to they'll want to wrap this up and go about the business of uh, executing the strategy that's embedded in the NDAA. This was the point here to get this done, Jeannie, instead of a CR and, and you know, handcuff the 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 Pentagon, essentially, when it comes to making decisions. But as the the ambassador pointed out, this gets us halfway through next year. Where are we going to be in the debate over funding at that point? Yeah, I I mean, it's not ideal, but, you know, it's better than than some other things are looking. And, you know, it's going to be a fight. Um, You know, all of next year and the next two years are going to be a fight. And we've seen this as it pertains to funding on Ukraine. There is widespread bipartisan support. It will pass in this NDAA. It is much needed. But the reality is, as as, you know, as Volcker just mentioned, from both the left and the right, you are hearing persistent calls. They are talking about accountability. That is something they have a right to ask for. But the longer this thing drags out, the harder it is going to be. And particularly if we see inflation rise in this country or we go deep into a recession, then calls that we are sending money overseas at this rate and in Mm. this amount, those are going to mount. And that's going to be hard for both the left and the right to really swallow. And we've heard that from a variety of, of, of sectors already, and it's going to pick up next year. What do you both think about this expanded training program? We're talking about a lot of people here. This is 500 Ukrainian forces a month. We have to get out of Ukraine into Germany, back into Ukraine uh, with their newfound skills that, of course, threaten the Russian military. Is, are, are, these, are these maneuvers, the training and, and the, the transportation, the transfer of this many troops going to become potential uh, target for Russia, Rick? Well, I mean, obviously, if you mean a potential target to attack while yeah, they're in Poland or someplace else, well, absolutely while crossing not. the border. Uh, well, look, I mean, if they're going to start sending missiles to the border, uh, they stand a very high likelihood of uh, engaging a NATO ally uh, in this war. And that's the last thing they want to do. I mean, could you imagine? Just think about it. Russia is employing every ounce of its military might against one country. Could you imagine if the entire NATO community decided they've had enough? It would be over in a week. And, and so the last thing Vladimir Putin wants is to actually bring out the ire. He's trying to balance the attack in the Ukraine with trying to undermine the U.S. and our allies in NATO uh, to get us to weaken, because he, he knows that if we are strong, he cannot win this fight. And that is the problem he's having right now. Boy, yet we're strengthening the Ukrainian military here. He's promised to go after the Patriot missiles. And I'd like to hear from both of you on this as well, Jeannie. If he starts targeting those missile batteries, the, I'm, I'm assuming they would be positioned throughout the country and even in places like Kiev. D- does that defeat the purpose? Well, yeah, but it's going to be harder for them. I mean, this is why they are responding so strongly to this, is this puts them in a weaker position. They won't be able to attack from the sanctuary they've been able to attack so far. They're going to have to go use dumb rockets, and they're going to have to get close to the Ukrainians. And when they do that, they have an increased chance of being hit back. And that's exactly what they don't want. But as the ambassador asked, the question is on both the troops and the the Patriot missiles. Why now, and why did we wait so long? And also, as you were just talking to Rick 
about what does this do in terms of a nature of a proxy war and at what point do we get dragged into this thing even further? Hopefully not, but if at all. And that's a big question that NATO's got to think about. Well, that's, I guess, why they haven't been sent yet, Rick, although you could certainly have made the case to send them, uh, what, 10 months ago when when when, uh, when Vladimir Zelensky was, was begging for help to close the skies. Now these cities have been leveled. Now the Patriot missiles show up. Do they make a difference? They make a big difference. I mean, the whole point about drawing the fire from the Russians is that's what Patriot missiles do. They knock those rockets out of the sky. Mm -hmm. They create a control over the sky. So if the Russians want to use up all their missiles attacking Patriots that are just going to knock them out of the sky, <laughs> uh, you know, then then that's a great way to do it because they've had unfettered access to all the energy uh, facilities and infrastructure in the country. And they've put them on the heels because of a very cold winter. These these Ukrainians are going to suffer. Mm -hmm. So what? And but the real key question is why isn't a Patriot uh, missile system already employed? We sent them to Saudi Arabia for heaven's sakes. We've oh, sent boy. them to Iraq. Yeah. There are Patriot missiles in Poland. They're I mean, wrong. like this is a key element of creating a a you know uh, a security surface around the air in uh, in Ukraine. And, and we could have done this first, not last. I have to admit, uh, Jeannie, I wonder if they're already on the way. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you have to wonder that. And with all the reporting and, of course, Russia responding to the reporting, and, and we still don't know if, when, and how, you know. But, again, why this has taken so long is an enormous question. And I, I don't feel like we're going to get an answer to it anytime soon, but we should. A lot more on funding the government here. As Chuck Schumer says, no drama, please. You know, we are set to run out of money tomorrow. Are they going to make this deadline, get under the bigger picture? It looks like it. We'll have the latest next with the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano on the fastest hour in politics. It's Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Working against the clock on Capitol Hill, knowing that the government runs out of funding, it runs out of money tomorrow night. No one is threatening a shutdown, but that doesn't mean that things can happen when you walk right up to the line. They've got to pass this one-week extension, as we've discussed, so they can buy themselves time for the greater omnibus. And so the warning has gone out to members in the House. Denny Hoyer just made it clear a couple of moments ago, the majority leader. Yeah, could be if you don't get this done, a working Christmas. Uh, we all understand uh, Christmas is Sunday uh, and none of us want to be here. But all of us have a responsibility, obviously, to complete the business of funding the government of the United States of America. Ooh. So we will be here. Okay. Unless, of course, the Senate gets its work done a little early. Then we won't be here on Christmas having this silly conversation. They just put out the House schedule for next week. They're planning for a couple of days. Middle of the week would help a lot. Senator Chuck Schumer, if you guys could get your thing done. We should have no drama, no gridlock, and no delay mm. on passing a week-long CR. Just remember, those who demand something happen 
and risk shutting down the government almost always lose. Let me say that again. No drama, no gridlock, no delay. That's the recipe right now for avoiding a shutdown within the next 48 hours. No drama, Obama. Actually, that's when they really were threatening a shutdown. We reassembled our panel. Rick Davis, boy, he's been there. Jeannie Shanzano, she's with us now, Bloomberg Politics Contributors. Is this just all a bunch of bluster here, Rick, or is there a chance that uh, the clock strikes 12 tomorrow night and government starts to shut down on Monday? No, I, th- I think they'll, they'll execute the CR. I think the Senate will do its business. The fact that the House has gotten it done uh, in, in a style which only the House can do, you know, they needed nine Republicans to come over to pass that CR. It's just amazing. Seven of which aren't coming back to Congress. Wow. Just shows you how dysfunctional everything is right now. But, uh, but the bottom line is that the Senate isn't going to drop a beat on this. They'll, they'll get that thing out, even if it's, you know, one minute before midnight tonight. They've got to get, as we discussed, uh, this uh, this National Defense Act passed as well. That's going to be issue number one here in the Senate. And they're working through a bunch of amendments. It's interesting, Jeannie, one of them from Senator Ron Johnson, of course, the Republican from Wisconsin who was just reelected, uh, that would reinstate his his measure would reinstate members of the military fired, discharged for refusing covid vaccines, remembering that the underlying defense bill rescinds the mandate for the military, however, did not go so far as to reinstate those service members. I'm assuming that goes nowhere. Yeah, you would hope so. And especially since the military has said, you know, that this can impact readiness. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, at this point, it's hard to tell. And let's remember what we're talking about. For this first vote, we're talking about a CR. We are not talking about funding the government for any sustained period of time. It's a week. That's, that's, it's a week. This is the battle right now, a week. And any one senator can slow this thing down. I think they get it done. But, you know, this is, this is where we are at this point. You've got the NDAA, and then you've got a real funding bill that you've got to get through at what we're hearing is $1.7 trillion. And that's going to be what? 5,000, maybe more pages. We don't know. We don't know the details. And we're expecting members to just gather and push this thing through. Nancy Pelosi can only lose two Democrats, and they need 60 to kill the filibuster. So, you know, and that's after we get through the CR. So we're holding our breath for a week-long, you know, extension at this point. Next week's going to be a blast. Can I just talk this mandate stuff out with you for a second, Rick? Because, again, the underlying bill rescinds the COVID vaccine mandate for members of the military. That was a very controversial item. It stayed in. So why not reinstate those who were discharged for not taking it? Is is it a different conversation when it comes to refusing orders? Well, yeah, Um, uh, this was part of the rules of the road uh, at the time. Uh, And remember, uh, there was a lot more risk at the time we had uh, a out of control pandemic yeah. uh, when this rule went into effect. So the last thing you want to do is look back and say, OK, these people violated the chain of uh, uh, command and mm-hmm. and refused. They knew what they were getting into when they did it. And, and they're out. Um, I don't think you want to uh, legislate uh, discipline within the military. And I think this is always the the yin and the yang when dealing with uh, the military. It's a culture. Uh, that requires discipline up and down the command uh, 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 system. And and the Congress gets in here and meddles with that, and, yeah. and sometimes it creates a counter-incentive counter for people to want to be in the military. They like clarity and they like rules. And in this case, that was the rule of the road. Uh, if they want to change that rule, uh, you don't do it retrospectively. Yes. You do it right. for the future. 
And that's the way it looks like it's it's going to be here, Jeannie. That defense bill is going to be passed eventually. The mandate's going to go away. But you're going to hear a lot of people complaining about serving their country and being fired for going along with uh, what became the rule. They still disobeyed orders, however, at the time. They did. And it's about, we understand, about 8,000 discharged for refusing to get a vaccination. And I couldn't agree more with what Rick is saying, because the reality is that was the rule at the time, whether you believe it was fair or not, that they were required to take it. What we also understand is about 99 percent of people in the military, military personnel had at least one COVID shot. 8,000 were discharged for refusing orders to get a vaccination. For the Congress, with Ron Johnson and Ted Cruz and others to push through an amended the, the reinstatesman, reinstates them rather is to undermine the leadership and authority of the military chain of command and that's why you know it's it's in my mind unimaginable it passes but at this point i you know at this point it's almost and anything goes and you know i guess if they can push hard enough maybe they can squeak that through but let's hope not yeah well we'll we'll see obviously and let you know what happens with it i wonder what this whole debate before we turn to the matter of COVID, and we're going to talk about that coming up here, by the way, COVID funding, COVID preparation for winter, and uh, and and a, and one governor who sees things very differently. But, Rick, what does this budget debate tell us? Assuming that we're not going to shut down, we're going to get the CR, and then the omnibus will pass next week. Everyone goes home for the holidays in a good mood. What does this tell us about the debate next year? We're going to have to start the budget debate all over again with a Republican House and a Democratic Senate that don't want to get along very well. Well, the first thing I would say is it really does indicate uh, that Congress has become a money printing machine. Uh, there was really no efforts whatsoever to do anything that would sort of uh, look at programs and, and take things out of the budget in order to cut back on federal spending, right? Yeah. It was basically how big can we make this, you know, within the reason of uh, the budget. And so- But so, Kevin McCarthy would say, hey, we weren't consulted. That was a Democrat dream run wild. Well, you know, look, all the budgets in the last six years have been this way, right? All the Trump budgets were record breaking yes. uh, and only to be beat by the two budgets that, uh, that Joe Biden has written. So, so that's not changing. The, the reality is, I do think, though, next year, Republicans in the House are going to make a stink about government spending. I think they will look at opportunities to find things to uh, try and get out of the, 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 the federal government spending racket. Mm -hmm. and, and, th and that may come in the fact that they, if they're smart, they will start doing um, uh, these budget bills for each of these independent agencies and government agencies, because that's how you do it. That's w when you start that process of the authorization, 12 different agencies of government yep. all working through their committees, you can start peeling back all that excess spending. Uh, and I do think with a looming recession and increasing efforts on trying to prop up the U.S. economy, this focus on deficit spending is going to become a real issue for these budgets next year. Is it going to include a conversation about entitlement spending, Jeannie? I, I think it absolutely will, and we will see that pushed in the House. And I'll tell you what else it tells us is that our congressional appropriation system is completely broken. What we've had a budget on time four times in the last 40-plus years. That is unthinkable when you contemplate that. And the other thing is that the process is beholden to minorities who can have this outsized voice, and the people who are doing the most work in Congress are the people who are retiring. If you are staying in Congress, 
Congress. You simply can't afford politically to stand up and face, you know, face the music, so to speak, and try to do something, you know, so crazy, like get a budget passed on time. Or you're going to feel the wrath of somebody like Kevin McCarthy, who's going after Senator Shelby right now. So, you know, this is where we are at this point with Congress. And we wonder why the American public is so fed up with what is going on in Washington. This is exactly why. September 30th, this should have been done. They will jam this through at the last minute. We hope <laughs> they jam it through. And that's the best we can expect in the next couple of weeks. But you see that potentially coming to an end next year. Does that would, would spending cuts come along with tax cuts, Rick? Uh, well, you know, I think spending cuts will be the first thing that they look at, right? Yeah. Because getting a tax cut uh, is going to be much more difficult and less politically salient, right? Oh, we're going to do tax cuts in the middle of a recession or right. a near recession. But certainly people, uh, voters, uh, endorse the idea of a smaller and, and, and less bloated federal government. And, and at the end of the day, uh, pointing out pork and pointing out excess spending is actually not a bad thing for any Republican or Democrat alike. I mean, you know, we used to print a, a pork book, and we That's had this right. funny pig pulling a wheelbarrow full of cash, and movie. John McCain would make a lot of hay about it, and it's exactly what American public thinks yep. you should do. And you get, That's why you got coverage every year on that. It was it was great radio, great TV. Uh, Rick and Jeannie will stay right where they are. We're going to advance the conversation to funding for COVID. Now, remember, that didn't happen. The White House wanted over 50 million dollars right billion i can't even remember the number anymore vaccines tests the whole bit none of it got passed i think it was 52 billion if i remember correctly and so they had to put the free tests on hold well they're going back out now because cases are on the rise and we'll talk about that coming up with the architect of New York City's pandemic response program, Dr. Jay Varma. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So it was $22.5 billion. That was the original funding request for COVID response from the White House. $22 billion. I was many billions of dollars off. You know, sometimes these numbers start rattling around in your head. Then it got cut by more than half, $10 billion. When Mitt Romney made a deal, they brought it back around. Remember, this was several months ago. It was warm out. We were not surging. And the White House was warning, hey, we're going to need this stuff. We're going to run out of vaccines. We're going to run out of tests. And because it never got passed, there was never a dollar of that passed, they stopped that program to give people free home COVID tests. That program, as you've been hearing today on Bloomberg, is back on. We're seeing COVID rising across the country this winter. And while COVID isn't the disruptive force it once was, we are focused on ensuring that the U.S. is prepared for this winter, no matter what the virus throws at us. There you get it. So you can get four tests at a pop, send away, they'll ship it to your house. That's Dr. Ashish Jha, who runs the COVID response program uh, at the White House. He was in the briefing room today with the press secretary and says, you know, 
We had to make accommodations for these tests. We're operating in a resource-constrained environment in the absence of additional congressional funding for the nation's COVID response. And that means we've had to make some tough choices. Like in the summer, we were forced to suspend the covidtest.gov program so we could preserve our tests. Why did we want to preserve our tests? Because we knew there would be a moment later in the year when COVID cases would rise again. And so we turn to Dr. Jay Varma for help on this, the chief medical advisor and Kroll Institute fellow. He is the architect. This is why we reach out to Dr. Varma at times like these. The architect of New York City's COVID pandemic response. This was under the de Blasio administration, engineering what was the largest diagnostic testing and contact tracing program in the country. And so, Doctor, it's great to have you back. How concerned are you about winter and the White House falling short? Ashish Shah made the point today that after this this round of tests, we don't have more in storage. That's going to be all. You know, this is a really tricky situation. You know, on the, on the one hand, it's clear that um, healthcare systems around the country can sort of muddle their way through these current surges. Um, but of course, that's not what we want for our healthcare system, right? We want people to get the best possible care. And, and I say muddle their way through because healthcare workers are getting sick and overwhelmed. Patients are getting, people are getting sick and, and surging to emergency departments. So the more, you know, government does to kind of reduce infections by giving people the tools um, like masks, like tests mm-hmm. to help prevent infections, the better off we are. So I think every little bit helps, um, even though the impact is probably going to be relatively small overall. There's been a lot of talk about China, of course, uh, dealing with their own issues here in the COVID zero policy. But cases have been surging over there. And it's pretty difficult, to, as we know, to deal with this uh, on a local level. This is a global issue and our economy is being constrained by by problems uh, in China. And so the question comes up, doctor, why aren't we providing vaccine, at least technology, if not vaccines themselves to China? Ashish Jha, was asked that today. What I would say is we stand ready to help any country in the world with vaccines, treatments, anything else that we can be helpful with. We have been the biggest donor of vaccines, as I said, almost 700 million doses. Uh, and that that stance of being uh, helpful, being ready to help uh, continues and hasn't changed. There's a report out that Pfizer has signed a deal to sell uh, Paxlovid in China as these cases climb, doctor. Does the U.S. need to send vaccines there, too? You know, I, I spent three years working in, in Beijing with the China CDC, but this was under a previous, uh, you know, governing part, governing um, leadership there. Yeah. And at that time, there was really good exchange. I, I think the challenge has been, you know, China has been unwilling to, uh, you know, use the mRNA technology uh, that was developed outside of China before this. So it has relied only on its own vaccines. And, and so I don't see a situation politically in which the current Chinese administration would go out and suddenly, you know, either take donations or purchase vaccine on the global market. There's plenty of vaccine available um, to be provided. You know, the you know, the global covid vaccine uh, facility has vaccines that could be used. But it's really a question of China's interest in it, not so much what the U.S. or, or the companies can provide. I don't know if you're aware of what's going on in Florida, but I have to ask you about it because Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, has turned into a vaccine skeptic. He was not always one. And he's pushing back not only on Dr. Anthony Fauci, which has been a, tar- a target of DeSantis, but but the whole CDC, the entire uh, official medical community here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and he's he's launching his own panel 
Listen to Governor DeSantis making the announcement. In Florida, uh, we're creating uh, what we're calling the Public Health Integrity Committee. It's a committee of expert researchers that will uh, be able to assess uh, recommendations and guidance uh, related to public health and health care, but particularly being able uh, to offer critical assessments of things that uh, uh, bureaucracies like the FDA, CDC, and NIH um, are doing. He's been speaking about the risks of vaccines being potentially greater than the benefit here, uh, Doctor. Are we going to find that that some states are copying or doing what Florida is doing and, and leaving us essentially with a patchwork here of, of, of state governments that have an apparatus to push back on the CDC and the federal government? You know, this is a very problematic situation for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, CDC doesn't actually have any regulatory regulatory authority over the states. You know, what CDC issues is guidance. So states are not under ever been under any obligation to to do what CDC recommends. Um, and so, in fact, what you're seeing is a is a, a political environment in which they're going to actually end up ruining the credibility of all public health expertise. You know, these aren't blunt instruments. You know, the average person, when they hear this type of intense vaccine rhetoric, doesn't say, okay, well, that is really only about COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. All other vaccines must be safe. We know from a long history of public health that this is going to result in more measles cases, more mumps cases, meningitis, and the return of polio and a number of other diseases. So, it's really perplexing yeah. to me why a, a major political figure would be on the side of, you know, more illness and death in the United States, because that's unfortunately what this is going to lead to. It's not just about COVID. Yeah. It's really about the entire safety of our public health system, which relies on vaccines as its foundation. Well, particularly when it's it's an official who embraced vaccines, appeared with Donald Trump for an Operation Warp Speed event, urged people to be vaccinated. This is Ron DeSantis in May of 2021. So my message is the vaccines protect you, get vaccinated, and then live your life as if you're protected. Okay, fast forward to yesterday. It doesn't prevent them from getting infected or spreading it anyways. The benefit is minuscule, uh, but as Joe Latipo and other studies have shown, you know, there is a risk for doing it. So why can't our medical establishment acknowledge that. Why the deception? Doctor, I've only got 30 seconds. Do you know of the risks he's talking about? Well, unfortunately, what's happened is there are, like any medical intervention, there are small risks that occur with the vaccine. What they've been really touting is the risk of heart inflammation. But the risk of heart inflammation from the virus is 10 to 100 times greater than it is from getting the vaccine. And the vaccine protects you from getting that inflammation. And so, unfortunately, this is really all about trying to take a stance opposite the current administration, which is pro-vaccine, and uh, without really relying on the evidence, and and unfortunately leading to to other blowback, which is going to be extremely unfortunate. Doctor, thank you. Dr. Jay Varma with us on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Interesting times at the RNC. Could the MyPillow guy actually end up being the chair? Because this day is not going great for Ronna McDaniel as we reassemble our panel. News today at redstate.com. Somebody started leaking the bills here. And boy, you know it's not good when that happens. Numbers on how much was spent following, of course, a disappointing result in the midterm elections. This is the RNC's 2021-22 spending, according to Red State. It calculates more than 
a half million dollars in private jet expenses, $64,000 clothing retailers. How about $321,000 in floral arrangements? Ronna McDaniel's been on the defensive since election night, recalling this moment on Fox. Listen, I, I, we never used the word red wave at the RNC because we knew the map had shrunk. There were less competitive seats because of redistricting, and we picked up 14 in 2020, and everybody forgets that. I never said it would be a red wave. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano were here at Bloomberg Politics Contributors. Uh, I mentioned the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, Rick, because as we discussed once already, he is actually running, but... I, I don't figure he will be the next person to chair the RNC. Maybe you can tell me otherwise. But is there a real contender to run against Ronna McDaniel? You know, there are some that are lining up. Harmon, uh, Harmit uh, Dillon, uh, who was an attorney, sometime attorney for Donald Trump. Uh, but she's got the same problem. I mean, you know, one of one Trump. of the one of the checks written by the RNC was nine hundred thousand dollars to her law firm. I mean, Ooh. so you know, it's not likely that you would look at her and say, "Wow, this is." Uh, this is going to really change things at the RNC when it comes to excess spending. I mean, look, this is really egregious. Uh, and, and what is really egregious is it looks like it's really just a big spa day for the staff. I mean, here they are supposed to be busting their hump to try and yeah. win elections. And all they want to do is go on these retreats to these fancy places. I mean, I don't get it. And, uh, and I think this is only part of the scandal. I, I think the, the, digger, the, the more people dig, the more they're going to find out that there were sweetheart deals with media and mail vendors and people mm. were allowed to go out mm. and earn outside incomes. I mean, right. I think this has been a profligate income generating uh, RNC for their staff. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, regardless of who wins, the whole lot gets thrown out on the street. Wow. How about it? Rick Davis knows. I'll tell you, it's been a heck of a time at the Salamander Resort and Spa in Virginia, from what I've been reading. And so then we mentioned Trump. How about the major announcement? Everybody thought the big tweet was coming today, the first tweet. But no, it wasn't that. <laughs> After teasing a major announcement, this is what it turned out to be. Hello, everyone. This is Donald Trump, hopefully your favorite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington, <laughs> with an important announcement to make. Yep, here I'm we go. I'm doing my first official Donald J. Trump NFT collection. What? Right? NFT collection? That's what it was. NFTs depicting his head on any number of characters, including those of superheroes. Each card comes with an automatic chance to win amazing prizes, like dinner with me. I don't hey. know if that's an amazing prize. <laughs> well, come on. But it's what we have. Or golf with you and a group of your friends at one of my beautiful golf courses, and they are beautiful. Right. I'm also doing Zoom calls, a one-on-one okay. -on -one meeting. <laughs> Autographing memorabilia. He's going to be doing voicemail messages, maybe. Jeannie, what do you think? Wow, yeah. <laughs> It's our, it's Does this hard mean to the campaign's over already? It, it it should be over after this. I mean, he's selling what essentially are baseball baseball cards for ninety nine dollars. Ninety nine dollars yeah, each. They are digital, and which makes it worse. You can't even hold them if you would want to. I mean, cringeworthy is probably the best words. You'd think this means the campaign is over. He's losing in every uh, poll by thirty to forty points to somebody yeah. who wants to attack the people who created the vac the vaccine. I mean, this is a bad. Time but did you Donald see Trump. the superhero cards? I mean, they did pick the right music, didn't they? Yes. Rick, I think the sound on NFTs are coming. What what character would you play, the cowboy or the superhero? Uh, I, I I just want to be the quiet guy behind the scenes who's <laughs> not got an NFT named after him. That's that's my goal in life is oh. never to be an NFT. But you know, think about the think about the sort of broader context of this. 
here we right. are talking about We're the biggest crypto disaster. This is and true. And he wants to be an NFT guy. NFTs. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.